By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. By the way, just a quick flag. Um, we did have a hardware failure of one of our SD cards on the audio recording for this episode, unfortunately. So the audio for this episode is a little bit worse than the kind of high quality that we normally go for. I still think the episode is enormously valuable and I learned so much from the conversation. So I do hope you'll forgive the slightly choppy audio. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. When we started working on Eight Slave Now, you know, seven, eight years ago, we found that the way that people were talking about sleep was mostly in the context of illness, but there was no way to describe what it meant to be healthy in your sleep. We believe that sleep is just like fitness. It is not just an end. You're constantly working on it. It's okay if you don't sleep well tonight. What you're about to hear is an interview between me and, this is a, the first three-way interview we've done on the podcast, me and Matteo and Alex, who are the husband and wife co-founders of 8sleep, which is the world's first sleep fitness company. So this conversation focuses on sort of two main areas. Firstly, we talk a lot about sleep fitness. How do we optimize our sleep? How do we make sure we're getting the right amount of sleep? What is the 80-20 of what we need to know to really maximize our performance in the realm of sleep? But we also talk about how we maximize our performance in the realm of diet, like nutrition and exercise as well. If you knew there is one thing that you can do every single day and will enhance your body performance, it's natural, and it will help you live longer and a healthier life, what is that? That is sleep. And so if you want to raise your own uh, performance bar, the number one thing on earth you can do is sleep. And the other half of the conversation is around entrepreneurship, how he and Alex and their co-founders built this company to this valuation of over $500 million, what it's like building a physical product that is essentially a mattress that has sensors in it and circulates water around. Over 90% of startups and businesses fail. So the reality is there are safer routes to make money. If you want to make money, being an entrepreneur is probably not the easiest way either. You know? The number one thing driving founders is they don't want to fail. All right, so Alex and uh, Matteo, thank you so much for, for coming on. This is this is very exciting because I've been, you guys are the, the founders of 8sleep, which is now this $500 million company. I've been hearing about you basically every week on the Tim Ferriss show. And I bought one of the one of the products a couple weeks ago and it arrived, I think like last week. And my, my sister-in-law has been using it for the last several months and says it's completely changed her life. So really excited to be talking to you guys. And you're in the UK because you're, you're doing, you're sponsoring Mercedes's team for Formula One. Which is just absolutely insane. Um, I'd love to get started with like so. Eight Sleep is apparently the, the world's first ever sleep fitness company. So I'd love to dig into what is sleep fitness and kind of the deal with that. But before we do that, you guys are co-founded the company. You guys are married. How how did you guys meet? What was the what was the origin story? You want to tell it? Yeah, <laughs> uh, we met in Miami actually. At the time, I was still living in Italy, but I was starting a business in the U.S. in New York. Uh, so I was in New York, I flew to Miami for a couple of days of vacation. It was, uh, um, Halloween night and we met uh, actually in a club, which is, uh, not really as, I'm, I'm not a, a big, uh, not clubbing guy and she's not a, a clubbing person. But that night, because it was Halloween, we both went to this club. Um, our friends, they met and then we were like one next to each other and we started talking to. Each other. No, no way. <laughs> it was almost 12 years ago, so you know, it's been a little bit. Oh, 12 years ago. Okay, yeah. that, was, that was a while ago. Uh, yeah. And then there was 
The following night, I invited her out for dinner because then I was flying back to Italy. So it was back or nothing. And she agreed to, to have dinner together. And then we stayed in touch. I came back to the U.S. And then it's when we started dating. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're originally from Italy. What about, what about you? I'm from Mexico, actually. So I was in Miami just for school. Oh, so you guys were both kind of in America just visiting Correct. broadly. Yeah. Yeah. So then were you like long distancing? Like, how, did, how did that we work? We did, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm from Mexico. I grew up in Tijuana at the border. Um, I was born in California, so I did a year of school in Miami. And so we sort of have this like weird, you know, background mix. And, um, we were in Miami. Then eventually I went back to Mexico to finish school. He went back to Italy. Then we moved to the U.S. and I graduated and moved to the U.S. Like it's just been like a bit moving all around. Yeah. Oh, well, but the bottom line is was one, uh, one year apart. And then I moved to New York to start my previous business. Alex graduated and she came to New York with me. Okay. And that is how everything started. Oh, excellent. So I, I understand that you've got a background as like a, Pro, pro athlete or something like what's what, yeah. what what was happening there was, was that in Italy was that in the US was uh, there was a in uh, in Italy mainly in Italy and uh, yeah I was a tennis player when I was a teenager I did a bunch of sports but tennis was the the number one then I also raced with cars I did some uh, uh, ski races but yeah ninety percent of my focus uh, when I was a teenager was uh, being a tennis player. And that is how I got into recovery, performance, all that kind of thing. Then I studied law, so I became a boring uh, business <laughs> lawyer. I worked for two of the largest law firms, actually British law firms, Allen Aubrey and Freshfields, Brookhouse Denninger. Yeah. And then uh, I started my first company in Italy. Then uh, I sold that, so I started another one in the U.S., and then I started Italy. What was the first company? Uh, they were both in solar energy, so clean tech and renewable energy. Uh, there was a big booming of uh, clean tech energy, particularly solar in Italy. Probably the the only big moment uh, to in in the past fifty years to start a company from scratch in Italy. Right, <laughs> and that is how I was able to shift and switch from being a lawyer to uh, become an entrepreneur oh, wow. without funding. Okay, so pro athlete when you were young, then boring lawyer and then entrepreneur in Italy and then you moved to New York. Yeah. So I sold the Italian company. I moved to the US. I replicated the same business model in the US. We raised some money and then our um, pipeline of products got acquired by a, a company owned by Panasonic. And then I started Italy. Oh, wow. Okay. So by the time you would exited the second company, presumably you're super rich and don't need to worry about money at this point. I'm just kind of guessing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I think we're so then you never know, but yeah, yeah. I, what we are doing now is, it's, I think outside money is more yeah. just, uh, I think to help people live a healthier and longer life. If, if I look back at the career, one thing I'm really proud of is the first two companies were in clean tech, right? So yeah. to help the world to be a better place yeah. and now something in health. And so we are um, helping human beings to live a longer yeah. and healthier life. <laughs> no, I love it. Like, well, one of the things I really like about speaking to founders is that and I, I was reading this in one of these like CEO coaching books where it's like, usually the first company people start is because they want to get rich. And then once they've, well, once they've gotten rich and they're like, cool, I want to get rich and I have fun. And then once they've gotten rich and had their fun at that point, the, the rest of their life is about actually being service driven and impact driven. Yeah. And I feel like that was very much the case for me where I started off doing like the first business at university, helping people get into med school. Cause I enjoy teaching, but, but really I wanted to make money because it's like, you know, I've got student loans. I don't want to, I don't want to be broke. Let's try and make some money. And now sort of seven years down that this YouTube channel is doing well, I feel like my own internal focus is shifting from 
how do I actually try and help people? And that seems to be the arc that a lot of people go down yeah. of like genuinely being like impact driven. Yeah. I think probably most of that comes to like, depending on, on your background, right? I think most, in, in both of our cases come from families that are pretty normal and sort of, you know, the middle class and they have jobs, but like, you don't live in wealth. And so a lot of your first jobs are like, yeah, you need to pay back your student loans. You have to make money. You need an income. Maybe you want to buy a house. And so like, it's, it's sort of that path. And then eventually you realize maybe you have more stability than your parents ever had. And you're like, okay, now I can, you know, the pyramid of Maslow and you're like, okay, now the self-actualization actually kicks in. Um, and I think it's pretty common for entrepreneurs that are sort of coming from those, those types of backgrounds to just eventually get rid of that guilt and be like, okay, now I can focus on something else. Yeah. So this is something I wanted to ask you guys about. So, you know, Simon Sinek talks about start with why and all that stuff. And I have spoken to a lot of young people who want to start businesses, but they all want to like, you know, go in, go into a particular career, but they're often, they often feel like, I don't really know why I'm doing this. I don't know what the core purpose is behind this other than to make money. And I've always thought that, Hey, you know, to make money is a, re- is a reasonable first, first goal. And then once you get past that point, then you can worry about the self-actualization. Is that, is that how you guys think about it as well? Or, or do you think it is important to have that kind of impact driven focus from, from day one when you're starting businesses? I think it can come over time. And I think it's really nice. We were actually talking about that last night while we were having dinner about this concept of legacy. Right. So if you can reach a point where you really want to build a brand that is here to stay and is a global brand and you have this legacy where you're helping millions of people to live a better life. Right. That is really fulfilling because I think you will never go through the pain of entrepreneurship just because of money. I think money is just a probably an evidence of not the the size of the results you deliver, but after a couple of months, it's not about that. Actually, there is Paul Graham who talks about that and says that the number one thing driving founders is uh, they don't want to fail because of, you know, how would you explain to your mom, to your friends and everyone else? And so avoiding failure is the number one driver of most uh, founders. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, at Y Combinator, we, we went through a Combinator program, which is pretty well-known around the world um, now a few years ago. And they talked about the fact that there's easier and better ways to make money, more money than being an entrepreneur. It's true because probably over 90% of startups and businesses fail. So the reality is there are safer routes to make money. Um, and if you want to make money, being an entrepreneur is probably not the easiest way either. You know, it's very time consuming. So it definitely starts for some other reason, even though there is that big lofty dream of like, you could become wealthy if you actually strike gold. Yeah. So, okay. So at this point you've moved to New York to start company number two in, in solar energy. What were you doing at the time? Oh. Yeah. So when I moved to New York, I had just graduated. So I actually studied communications in school, which is why now I, I focus on marketing and the brand for eight sleep. Um, and then I was just having normal jobs. I graduated from school. I'm like, who's going to give me a job in New York? Move <laughs> me there. Get me started. Um, so at the time before starting eight sleep, I was working at a financial technology company um, in, in New York. Okay. And so you guys at this point, it, it, well, what year are we in when you, when you both moved to New York? That was 2011. Yeah. 2011. And then you started Eight Sleep in 2014. So yeah. for those three years, you were working on solar energy yeah. and you had normal jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so where did the idea for Eight Sleep come from? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I would yeah. say in those three years, we were also always like packing things. That, that's yeah. how we started like working together. We yeah. would have like ideas. We would like do things over the yeah. weekend. So during the, yeah, during the weekend, we were uh, doing our own hackathons between the two of us. So we were building stuff together. What kind of stuff uh, did you build? Websites. Uh, we were trying different kind of business models, but it was just for fun. 
Then we started involving Max, who is our third co-founder um, and our CTO. And he was not the, the one with the, the, the strongest uh, technical skills. And uh, we started all playing on a couple of different projects with him. And then at a certain point, we came up with the idea of Eight Sleep. Um, I pitched it to Max. Max built a prototype. And then we organized a pajama party where we invited friends. And Alexandra, uh, she designed the whole presentation. And we put together a, a quick logo. Oh, wow. um, and that is how everything started. Because after the pajama party, one of our friends came to me and he gave me a 25K check. And because there was no company, there yeah. was no name, there was nothing. And so at that point, we say, okay, so maybe now we should incorporate yeah. <laughs> and cash the check. Um, and from there, we decided to start the crowdfunding campaign. What were the dots that connected to lead you to the idea of, I guess, cooling mattress? A couple of different things. The, the most obvious one is uh, uh, I started wondering a couple of years before I sleep why Elon Musk is taking me to Mars, but... I still spend a third of my life on a piece of dumb phone, right? <laughs> there is technology in everything we do. And then for eight hours a day, you go on this piece of dumb phone and you pretend to wake up fully refreshed. And that was making no sense to me as an athlete, as an entrepreneur working really long hours. And so I pitched this idea to Max and we started brainstorming about all the different types of technologies that we could bring to your bed. Mm-hmm. And then Max built the prototype. What was... what? What else was around at the time? Like, was was there any other, I guess, smart bed stuff? There were not smart beds, but I think one of the interesting things, you know, when I, when I remember Matteo kind of having this insight and starting to go through the process of understanding sleep in the landscape, there were, you know, Jawbone was a company that was around doing wearables, there was oh, yeah. Fitbit, and both of those companies were starting to track sleep through wearables. You know, at the beginning, they were just on fitness and stuff, and then they were going into sleep, and you were using both, right? And you were sort of trying to figure out, well... What, what can I discover about my own sleep in this, in this, with this technology? There were apps. You could put your phone on the bed and it would like track your movement. It was like very early on back in, yeah, 2014. And you started meeting with some of your friends, um, who were like, you would have calls with friends who were athletes back in Italy. There was that friend who like sailed around the world alone. And I remember that friend connected you with a doctor who would help these sailors train for sleeping in intervals of like 15 minutes because mm-hmm. they're alone on the boat. Yeah. And so you started discovering like the science of it. We're like, oh, oh wait, like sleep is actually like pretty complex. And like, there's all these things that have been learned around sleep. And so like, that is how the rabbit hole really started to understand that technology could influence some important factors of sleep. And the, the, the foundation of it is really is still what we do today is saying, well, the first thing is we believe at eight sleep and now as we did back then, that data is very important. You can't improve what you don't measure. Yeah. So what is the most seamless way in which we can measure? And that was sort of seeing, well, wearables were not really cutting it for us and like the phones were not really accurate and that's where Max, our co-founder and CTO, said, well, we can put sensors in the bed. But then from there, all of those conversations with the scientists that knew more than us uh, guided us to say, well, with that data, there's a lot of personalization you could do with the environment. And that's how you unlock the optimization of sleep. Mm, nice. Okay. So a, a couple of questions before we dive into like the, the, the technology. Firstly, so high performers, athletes and stuff, like how obsessed are they with tracking things? And like, what, what is that world like, you know, recovery and performance and, and stuff? Yeah, there is almost a gap because they are obsessed with sleep and performance, but at the end of the day, they don't track much. And they don't even know much about what you can do to actually improve your sleep, like time regulation. So one of the most surprising things for me now that we work with some of the best uh, 
athletes in the world is really this gap where look, thermal regulation is the big elephant in the room if you want to improve your sleep. Maybe what they know is just, oh, I should sleep at 78 degrees, my, my bedroom should be at 78 degrees, which is not even right because you, the temperature should change during the night, right? So yeah. 78 degrees could be right for one hour, two hours of the whole night, but the rest of the time you need a different temperature. Mm. Um, and sometimes they, they don't track themselves, right? Even on a daily basis with an Apple Watch, or maybe they just track themselves uh, um, while they are exercising. But other than that, they don't track themselves too much. Actually, um, a big I'm, surprise, I would say, when we go to dinner with athletes is food. Yeah, because I'm a kind of bio-accurate, meaning I like to play with all that stuff. Usually I have a CGM, I yeah. track everything, right? And so I'm on a keto diet, I fast, I, I do all these kind of things to optimize my performance. And most of these times, I remember we went with a really famous swimmer and we were asking him, okay, what do you eat now the night before the Olympic, things like that. And we were surprised by the fact that he was joking about eating a pizza the night before just because that's what he likes and uh, he was going for that. And this uh, is a multi-medalist, yeah. you know, yeah, you're like, yeah. okay, well. That's it. All right, you're really talented <laughs> because if you could win without paying attention to nutrition, um, I missed that, yeah. Just a quick message from one of our sponsors and we'll get right back to the episode. And this episode is very kindly brought to you by Heights. Heights is a brain care smart supplement. It is two capsules that you take every day. I've been taking it for the last 12 months and it contains over 20 evidence-based micronutrients that you need to keep your brain and body healthy. Like I said, I've been taking Heights every day for the last 12 months and through that, I've actually become friends with the founder, Dan, who we actually had on season one of this podcast. And this season, we also have an interview with neuroscientist and psychiatrist Tara Swart, who is the chief science officer at Heights as well. And one of the things I love about Heights is the fact that every single thing they do is very evidence-based. Over on their blog, on their website, they've got tons of articles along with links to all of the different papers that they've cited that show all the benefits of the various micronutrients that they've got in these two little capsules. And the best thing about taking these is that it's just two little capsules every morning, so you don't have to deal with green sludge or any other kind of faffery it's just literally taking two pills it's super easy to sign up you just go on the website you put in your address and they send you either a monthly or a quarterly subscription i sign up to the quarterly one myself because a it's cheaper and b i'd have to take fewer deliveries and if you use the coupon code ali15 at checkout that will give you 15 percent off the already discounted price of the quarterly subscription so you can try out heights to your heart's content so thank you so much heights for sponsoring this episode and for helping improve my own brain care for normal people, like what sort of gains do you get in terms of, I, I, I guess a lot of people listening to this might be thinking, oh, you know, I, I sleep well enough, I eat well enough, I'm not overweight. Like be, beyond the basics, how needle moving is it to start optimizing things and like, you know, doing the continuous glucose monitoring and the ice bath and like the, all, all the sleep stuff. Like, are we, are we talking kind of final percentage point? optimizations or is it actually surprisingly like bigger than that? No, it could be pretty big. Yeah. Maybe I'll just give like a bit of the background where like people say, we hear very often, it's like, oh, I sleep well, right? And what you realize and like the stats show you is like really at least a third of the world's probably sleep deprived. And you often hear people say like, well, I sleep six hours or some people say I sleep four hours, but it becomes a normal. Like, people think that the way they feel is normal because you're sort of like used to it. My body is amazing. It has yeah. this capacity to adapt. But Mateo always talks about the fact that like, if you just try for a week sleeping one hour longer 
um, especially if you are sleep deprived, you'll see how much better you can feel and all your potential that will yeah. be unlocked. That's my test, right? To people. And sometimes even when people say I need a vacation, I just say, no, you just need to sleep one hour longer every single day. Because if you think over a week, it's seven hours of sleep. You're getting one night of sleep, right? Yeah. Uh, and so just yeah. try that. Particularly if you want, need a vacation, but you cannot go on vacation. Sleep one hour longer every day for seven days, then come back to me and I'll give you a hundred bucks if you don't feel better. <laughs> All right? Okay, that's a good but, test. But going back to your yeah. question, I think it depends, meaning sleep. Sleeping the right amount of hours and in the proper way is going to be disruptive in a positive sense for how you feel. Mm. Then the second biggest one is definitely fitness, right? Working out is going to make a massive uh, difference in how you feel and also in how you eat. Right, because if you train in the morning, it's uh, unlikely that you will create junk food. You know, it's it's almost like a sequence, and you will start taking care of yourself more and more. And then I would say, in terms of nutrition, there are a couple of things that are the eighty twenty. Right? Okay, avoid this, or just I don't know, try to skip one of the meals and just eat uh, within an eight hours window. Yeah. And then you can take it to the next level where you are on a keto, you just eat once per day but that i think is the last word two oh. percent okay great so when it comes to sleep let's say for normal people what is the 80 20 of what we yeah. can do to, to improve our sleep consistency so go to bed at the same time wake up at the same time sleep seven to nine hours take care of your temperature um so thermoregulation with these three things you're 80 percent uh, probably 90 percent there is there so uh, what I've I've read why we sleep and I've read like some rebuttal online about like oh, why we sleep is bullshit because of all these things and there, there seems to be a lot of like mm, um, controversy in the literature around like seven hours eight hours nine hours six hours like what what's the kind of normal person takeaway from yeah. from this? <laughs> so the interesting thing and that is also part of the reason why we are called eight sleep is I don't believe you need eight hours of sleep. And this is how everything started. So before I ate sleep, I started looking into, okay, can I sleep less? So I'm a bit of a workaholic sometimes. Mm. And so I wanted to work more and work out more. And I discovered that there is no reason why we say that it should be eight hours. That it's just an average. And so everyone is different. The bottom line is you need a certain amount of deep sleep and a certain amount of REM. And at eight sleep, we believe we will compress your sleep. So in the future, you will be able to sleep only six hours and get more rest than when you were sleeping eight hours. Mm. Then going back to your question is, in general, an approximation is that you need between seven and nine hours to get that amount of deep and REM. Everyone is different. In our case, we tend to sleep at least eight hours and a half every single night. Um, at the end of the day, you need to do what... Uh, it, it you know, makes you feel good. But the important thing is that you don't oversleep, for example, during the weekends. A lot of people say, okay, you know, during the week I go to sleep at 10, I wake up at 6, but then during the weekend I try to recover and I sleep until 10 again. Mm -hmm. That's wrong because substantially you're jet lagging yourself because it's not that your body knows that it's the weekend. It says, why now you're waking up three hours later? Maybe you are in a different, in a different time zone. Yeah. And instead that consistency will train your body to wake up naturally at that time. And you will feel more refreshed when you wake up. So why, did, why is that? <laughs> uh, you have a biological clock and you have your own circadian cycle. And that is how your body operates, right? So this internal uh, clock 
it's setting all your needs, physiological needs, including sleep. And so you just want to be as consistent as possible. So your body goes into a sort of autopilot and knows that I need to feel asleep at this time and I need to wake up naturally at this time. So what time do you guys sleep and wake up? What's the... Yeah, we go to bed around 10, 30, and we wake up anywhere between 6, 6.30, 7 at the latest. Okay. So one of the... One of the issues that I have, and I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners will, will be feeling the same, is that, you know, I have I always have an intention, like, oh, I'd love to go to bed by 10.30. But, you know, I might be watching something, or I might be on my phone, or I might have some friends over, or, or dinner might be going on late. And I'm always thinking, uh, how important is it really that I sleep at 10.30 today? Uh, like, how, how do you guys do that consistently with a busy and social lifestyle? And how much leeway do you give yourselves to not do that? Yeah. So we are pretty regimented on that, I would say. Uh, so first of all, I think we are like in the US, you can have dinner, social dinners quite early. So you can have dinner at 6, 6.30 in Italy, it would never happen, yeah. right? <laughs> Italians would go at 9. Yeah, in Pakistan, uh, it's like 11 p.m. is dinner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we go for, if we have a social dinner, we try to set it early, let's say at 6, 6.30, and then we can be home by 8.30 and start decompressing. Uh, but it's really important because if you care about your performance the following day, it's really important that we wake up at 6.30, 7, 6, whatever, yeah. that we feel energized so then we can work out and then kick off the day in the, in the proper way. So almost you should think of sleep like uh, the, the most uh, enhancement, uh, the strongest enhancement drug on earth if you if you will right and i think there is matthew walker in, in the book that you were mentioning that talks about that right if you knew there is one thing that you can do every single day and will enhance your body performance is natural and it will help you live longer and a healthier life what is that that is sleep mm-hmm. and so if you want to raise your own uh, performance bar the number one thing on earth you can do is sleep sick and it's free yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Like, and everything is consequential, meaning yeah. if you want to work out, right? So first of all, I don't know if you know it, but you will sleep, you will die sooner from sleep deprivation than from, uh, food. La, from food, right? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> hopefully none of them, uh, of them is going to happen. But the other important thing is there are three pillars in health, right? One is sleep, one is uh, fitness, and the other is nutrition. But the foundational piece is sleep. If you don't sleep, you're not going to work out today. You feel too tired, you're unable to perform. You will start craving junk food and probably you will start eating carbs and everything else, right? So the foundational part is sleep. Sleep well, seven to nine hours. You wake up feeling great and refreshed. That will drive you to work out and eat properly. Um, should you... Uh, so if you know you've got your sleep... Well, okay, now I'll, I'll rephrase that. Some days I wake up feeling refreshed and I'm like, yeah. And a lot of other days, I'm like, if you have the sleep thing dialed in, do you always wake up feeling like, yeah? Is that is that like the aim, or is it is it normal to feel tired when you when you wake up? I, I don't think it's always the same, but the part that Mateo was mentioning before, it, it really is true. When you become very consistent, that's why consistency is, is such an important factor. Like that's where you can start with improving your sleep. Yeah. You will wake up more naturally, yeah. and just the fact that your body wakes up on its own, and that's because of that circadian clock you will feel better. The probability is that you will feel maybe not ultra energized every morning, but just wake up 
on your own are much higher when you stay consistent. And that already makes a difference in the perception you have of how you feel when you wake up. Yeah. 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 I've, I've, I've definitely found like anytime I, I read a sleep book or have a conversation with someone who's into sleep, then I'm like super consistent for the next five days or whatever. And I've, I'm currently on a consistent thing where every morning I wake up at half seven. But last night I had a, a, sl- a slightly later night and I set the alarm for half past eight. But I just woke up at half past seven anyway. I was like, yes. oh, I, I actually feel awake. Cool. Let's just get out of bed. And it was, and it's, it's almost been nice these last several days, like turning off my alarm when it's like, iPhone's like, oh, it looks like you're awake. Do you want to turn? Like, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Guess, I guess I'm awake. Yeah. Um, and then there is another trick. Oh, yeah. I was recently interviewed by Fortune and I spoke about that. That is the Nappuccino. Do you know the Nappuccino? No, what's the Nappuccino? So the Nappuccino is this, let's say you wake up, you don't feel great. You can try to take a nap during the day. But the best thing you should do is you should drink a coffee before the nap. The reason is the coffee will kick in 30 minutes later. The nap should be no longer than 30 minutes. Usually the, the recommended uh, amount of time is 20. Mm-hmm. And so you have an espresso. Yeah. You try to take the nap. By the time you wake up from the nap, the coffee will kick in and you will feel like a super a superman. And do you guys take naps? Yes. When we can, yes. I mean, I think it's like, what you were mentioning of like, you know, your social life and work, it happens. So like you can't maybe be taking naps every day, especially if you're going into an office physically. Um, but examples were like, we're in London, we don't live here when you're jet lagged, right? Like what is the right way to do it? Well, you want to stay consistent when you wake up, wake up early in the morning, don't try to oversleep, but then maybe you'll need a nap later in the day. We take the nap and then do the nappuccino thing. You wake up and then you you keep going. And a lot of athletes, not NBA athletes, but a lot of athletes that uh, play at the night, uh, they try to take a nap in the afternoon to recover because it's a matter of adenosine right uh, so the, the the nap will help you to reduce the amount of adenosine in your brain and you will feel more energized and refreshed mm-hmm. and like so, okay so this is a very specific question on this but anytime i've tried to take a nap i'm always like all right cool 20 minutes 30 minutes and then it takes me like 15 minutes to even fall asleep and then i'm like oh, was, was that even worth it like do you guys fall asleep immediately when you're no, because your mind is probably racing, like yeah. mine, so I struggle with that. So first you start learning, yeah, probably it's going to take me 15 minutes yeah. uh, to fall asleep. But the key thing is usually you don't need to, and actually you don't want to fall into deep sleep or REM. So mm-hmm. you want a very light sleep that is just going to relax your brain and reduce the amount of adenosine. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, yeah, you feel bad, like, oh, I didn't really fall asleep, but that is already helpful for your brain. Yeah, there's a type of sort of like the sleep, Dr. Andrew Huberman talks a lot about like the non-sleep deep rest. And so you can enter that sort of like this like kind of meditative state and where like your brain is resting and maybe you didn't fall fully asleep, but like it's still valuable for your brain to just really try to try to fall asleep and give it that moment of rest. Yeah, yeah if, if anything, it's just a relaxation thing, even if yes. you don't fall asleep. Just a quick little break before we get right back to the episode. And that's to let you know that this episode is very kindly brought to you by Shortform. Shortform is the world's best service for reading summaries of books, but it's more than just book summaries. What Shortform does is it basically creates a sort of study guide for tons and tons of different nonfiction books from all sorts of genres, from self-help and personal development to money and history and philosophy. It's just got loads of really interesting books and they summarize them firstly with a cool one page summary. But then they also have chapter by chapter outlines of each book. And in between the chapter summaries, they also have kind of interactive exercise sections where you can take the insights from the book and actually apply them to your life. And the other cool thing about short form is that if, for example, an author says something that is a little bit dodgy or that has been debunked or kind of disagreed with with another author, then the short form team will write a note saying that, hey, you know, this person said this thing about this topic, but actually 
that has been debunked by this other person and they'll bring in another source. And so it's not just a way of getting summaries of books, it's also a way of expanding your understanding of the genre as a whole. For example, one summary I read recently was The Minimalist Entrepreneur by Sahil Lavinia, who is the founder of Gumroad. Now, I read the book itself a year ago or so when it came out, but I found it super helpful to look at the short form summary to revisit some of the ideas in the book. And this kind of tends to be how I use short form. Either I use it as a way of deciding whether I want to read a book if it's new to me, or I use it as a way of revisiting ideas from books I've already read. So if any of that sounds up your street and you too would like to try out the world's best service for summarizing books, then head over to shortform.com forward slash deep dive. And firstly, that will give you a completely free five day trial where you can try it out and see if you like it. And it will also give you 20% off the annual premium subscription, which is the thing that I personally subscribe to. So thank you so much Shortform for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so we've talked about seven to nine hours. We've talked about consistency. Can you talk to me more about thermoregulation? What, what do we mean by that? Yeah, so the other big elephant in the room to really improve your sleep, unless you have sleep disorders, is temperature. And so your body temperature changes during the night. And as soon as you fall asleep, your body temperature drops. And then a couple of hours before the time you want to wake up, your body temperature will rise. Which, if you think, it does the same thing of the sun, right? So at night, it gets colder and colder. And then a couple of hours before the sunrise, it starts warming up and the sun comes out and it's warmer, right? So your body does the same exact thing. So what we do at day sleep is we didn't reinvent the wheel. We just help your body to actually do in the proper way what it's supposed to do. And so your bed will have a certain temperature by the time you go to bed. It could be hot or cold, anywhere between 55 and 110 degrees. Each side of the bed can have a different temperature. Sorry, what is that, what is that in Celsius? Do you know? <laughs> oh, uh, it's something like uh, ranges between 10 and 35-ish. Okay. Uh, something like that. So really cold to really warm. Yeah. Um, it's unlikely you go to this ex extremity. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the bottom line is you, you get in bed, it's a certain temperature that you like. As soon as you fall asleep, uh, the temperature will drop um, because what you want in the first part of the night is a colder temperature because in the first part of the night, you tend to get more deep sleep. In the second part of the night, when instead you tend to get more REM, you want a warmer temperature. It's called almost thermal neutrality. Yeah. And the reason is when you are in REM, your brain de deactivates a lot of controls. In REM is when you're dreaming, right? Yeah. And so in REM, you're not moving at all. Yeah. Because the body wants to protect itself because you're dreaming, yeah. right? And one of the things that deactivates is temperature control. And so you want to be in this uh, neutral, thermal neutral environment, so your body doesn't think that you could die during. during okay, because if the temperature changes a lot, it's going to be like, oh, yeah. what's going on? But the bottom line is, based on the different sleep stages, you need different temperatures, and that is what we provide. Mm. The results are that you get up to 34% more deep sleep, you get up to 32% more sleep quality, and you get up to 19% better recovery. So okay. pretty meaningful numbers. That's, that's pretty sick. Um, okay, so uh, is is there like an optimum temperature for people that don't have an night sleep? Like the reality is no. There is an approximation, which is what usually you know you, you hear saying, "Oh, you should sleep at 68, 70 degrees," which is what 18, 19 ish. Uh, yeah. yeah. But the reality is that's wrong because again, your body temperature changes, your sleep cycle is changing, yeah. and so temperature should adjust accordingly. Okay. Um, okay, so we've talked about sleep. Um, what is it, what's the eighty twenty of um, exercise and nutrition as well? Yeah. And then we so, can dive into yeah, for exercise is heat, uh, so high intensity interval training, 
and strength training. So with heat, what you want to do is you want to spike your heart rate and you want to let it drop. You want to do this three to five times a week, at least 20 minutes each time. This is what it would be up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other big thing is strength training, uh, right? Um, and so you should do that a couple of times a week as well, uh, from um, deadlift to chest training that will help uh, hormones like testosterone and other things. And both of them, they will help you. There is plenty of medical studies that they will help you live a longer and healthier life because you are taking care of your cardiovascular system and you're also making sure that uh, um, all your muscles are strong. Okay. Working out in the morning versus the evening versus the afternoon, any consensus on that? So on that, you can be flexible, whatever works best for you. My recommendation is don't work out three hours before going to bed, otherwise you will accelerate your heart rate and it will be harder to fall asleep. So do you guys do workouts in the morning? What's your yeah morning usually is the best yeah. But I think one of the interesting things Matteo and I talk a lot about because he experiments a lot with all these things and then he ends up dragging me into it (laughs) is the the differences just biologically amongst you know like even male female bodies and like our hormones and so even the example of working out a lot of the things now that people talk about in in the in the health space is that personalization for women throughout the month. Because as we go through different hormone levels throughout our monthly cycles, there is uh, different recommended ways to work out for your body because your body may need to utilize the energy for different things throughout the month, especially while you have your actual like menstruation during the month, right? It's like, it's really fascinating that it's becoming more and more towards personalization, which is the same thing we focus on sleep with, with sleep. The personalization is really key. Everyone needs different temperature. Everyone has different needs throughout every day and every day of their life. That's the same for working out and nutrition is another big, big one. Um, when we've used, um, continuous glucose monitors and we've tested it, it's just so incredible that we have such different response to foods. But at the end of the day, when you're cooking in a household, you're cooking the same meal for both people, right? And so how do you start understanding that actually diets are not like a blanket fits all, but people will actually have very different needs and hormones play a big role into that. And in the case of women, hormones actually change on a daily basis. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of the, a lot of the sort of approximations, like the whole 90 degree sleep, the whole, you know, the way we exercise, the way we eat, a lot of it is just sort of broad brushstroke things that people can do. So I, I suppose it, you know, some exercise is better than no exercise, but if you're going to optimize a bit more then okay, let's not do it three hours before bed. And, and there's always more levels you could go down if you really wanted to. Correct. It's like, you know, with skincare as well, there's like three main things and everything else is sort of last five, five, 10%. Yeah. So, okay. So we've talked about exercise. Um, finally, nutrition. What's 80-20 before we dive into the, the, the sleep tech stuff? So the 80-20 is about sugar, mm. right? You don't want sugar. It will create a glucose spikes. The sugar can be, you know, the regular sugar that we all know, but it also comes through carbs. Um, so that is the number one thing that you should try to avoid. Then if you want to take it to the next level, there is what is called fasting, right? And you could do what is called the 16-8. So try not to eat for 16 hours, or you could even avoid eating the whole day. You just have one meal a day. But that to me is the, the extreme. I do that, but I don't think it's really needed. The best thing is if you could just have a 16 hours window without eating. The reason is digestion is very consuming in terms of energy for your body. And uh, you want to leave your body alone for 16 hours so it can be focused on repairing cells instead of the digestion. And that should, in theory, help you to avoid cancer over uh, uh, time. Mediterranean diet, 
is the other big thing that is recommended. The other thing you need to pay attention is alcohol. There is plenty of medical evidence that alcohol will have a very negative impact on your sleep quality. Mm. So you could have a drop of even 20% in terms of HRV and deep sleep um, quality yeah. if you have alcohol at night. Oh. And so usually you should stop drinking three to five hours before going to bed, yeah. or at least you should limit the amount of alcohol that you mm. take. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I I started doing sixteen eight like last week ish. Uh, so yeah, doing a you know, think feeding window is like twelve twelve to eight. I, I yeah, I, I think I think your tip about just the the social dinners at six p.m. is just such a game changer because yeah. in in my mind dinner equals eight p.m. Yeah. There's just co- completely no reason for that. Yeah. Because then by the time you order it's nine p.m. and then it's like obviously going to hang out there until yeah. eleven p.m. I'm like. Oh, you go to sleep at midnight by yeah. then. Probably <laughs> had some alcohol and, and so you, you just had a drink and then you go to bed and then you wake up and you're already behind. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do, do you guys, um, train when fasted as well in the morning? Yes. Okay. So uh, any pre-workouts, caffeine, creatine, any, any of that? Jazz? The caffeine, yes. There are some debates about that. I think Peter Atia and also Tim Ferriss, they talk about that. Mm. Some people like to eat something, particular proteins before training. Some people do it immediately after, which should still be fine for your muscles. In my case, because I fast all day, I never eat. But actually, I think it would be better if you, if I remember correctly from Peter Atia, that you intake some proteins within a couple of hours after training. Okay, nice. So... We've talked about the age 20 stuff that most people can, can do. The thing, the actionable thing that I will take away from this is the social events at 6 p.m. Because that, I think that, that, <laughs> that is the same one. This completely changes the game. Yeah. Um, okay. So. But I would say eat at 6 p.m., 6 yeah. 30 if you can. Sleep seven to nine hours. Train two, three times a week. Just be active, right? And try to go for a Mediterranean diet. But this is the simplest way that is not too cumbersome. Amazing. Okay, so what is sleep fitness then? So the backstory on sleep fitness is that when we started working on Eight Slave now, you know, seven, eight years ago, we found that the way that just in general the media and people were talking about sleep was mostly in the context of illness. So you would hear a lot about sleep deprivation and insomnia and sleep apnea and like all the bad things. Yeah. But there was no way to describe what it meant to be healthy in your sleep. And what we realized is like if you don't have the language to say I'm healthy in my sleep, then what are people aspiring to? How are they measuring it? Right? How are we talking about it? And that's how the concept of sleep fitness came about. Why sleep fitness? Because we believe that sleep is just like fitness. It is, it is not just an end. You're constantly working on it. It's okay if you don't sleep well tonight. Um, but you're just, you know, going back to sleep and you go back to working on, you go back to the gym, something you need to be, be optimizing. You need to be actually prioritizing in your life. You can be measuring. And so it follows a very similar pattern to your physical fitness. So we came up with this word and it was a concept that we thought describes it really well. And we made it a key part of our business and our brand and ultimately describes that state of being healthy in your sleep and the energy that you get from it. Mm, nice. It's the same mindset of going to the gym, right? Yeah. You need to put the effort. You need to put the effort to go to sleep at 10, 10, 30, even if there are other things that you might want to do yeah. because it will make you feel great. Yeah. It's, it's like going to the gym. Yeah. And if you have like one or two nights where it's like you're traveling or whatever, then it's, it's like, fine, okay. right? It's it, like not going mean... to the gym for X days because you didn't have the time, but you want that mindset where this thing matters to me. It matters for my health. It matters for my performance. So I'm going to go to bed now because tomorrow I need to be at my peak performance. Mm. Okay, so 
where 2014, you guys have come up with the idea of kind of connecting these dots of like, okay, why are we sleeping on a random dumb piece of foam? And your friend Max realizes we can put sensors in the bed. Like, what is, what are the sensors doing? <laughs> yeah. So, so essentially the device is becoming a clinical grade device, right? We just reach 99% accuracy at tracking your heart rate compared to a medical grade device, an EKG, oh. right? Which if you think is pretty, honestly, Dependent upon the fact that I'm one of the founders, but it's pretty shocking, right? So your bed, without you wearing anything, charging anything, you go to bed and this bed now is able to track your heart rate with the same degree and level of accuracy of a medical grade device. Yeah. Right? So if you just think from a technological standpoint, it's pretty amazing. So how, how does that compare to Apple Watch or Arrow Ring or, you know, these other wearability type things that allegedly claim to do the same? Yeah. So they are, Almost all the, these devices reaching almost the same level of accuracy. The key difference with our devices, you don't need to wear anything. You don't need to charge anything. Yeah, you don't I, need I to change your habits, right? It's annoying wearing a watch and just have it charge. Like, when do you charge it? Like, yeah. Go to bed, as you did for the rest of your life. And when you wake up, if you want it, you can see all of the stats about your cardiovascular health. Right, and this is just the beginning. The next algo that we're gonna release will be about uh, respiration, and our respiratory rate has ninety nine percent accuracy as well, which means we'll be able to see things like snoring and sleep apnea yeah. without you wearing anything. Again, you just go to bed. The other key difference between eight sleep and most of the wearables is that the data for us is not the endpoint; it's just the beginning. Based on the data, then we take action for you. Okay. Right, so based on your sleep stages, we change the temperature of the bed. In the future, we'll take certain actions if you're snoring or if you have sleep apnea to reduce the snoring and the sleep apnea. And so we really use data as the step zero to then do the work for you while you are unconscious and improve your sleep performance. Why should we care about what is our heart rate during sleep? Like what's, what's going on there? Yeah. So first, the most basic thing is a couple of days before you get sick, you have fever, your heart rate at rest will change and will go up. And so nowadays, I'm able to predict when I will be sick. Uh, my team knew that I was getting COVID before I had COVID because my biometrics started changing. Respiration, heart rate. The other important thing is cardiovascular health, so heart rate and heart rate variability are a proxy for how rested you are, you are and how stressed you are. Yeah. Right. And so, for example, if you stop training or going to the gym for a couple of months, your heart rate of rest will probably go up. Right, because you're not training your your um, your heart. On the other side, there is this metric called heart rate variability. I don't know if you have ever heard of that, but it's substantially a metric that tracks the the space in between the heartbeats. And you want this space to change all the times because it means that your heart rate is more reactive. Things like a boxer, right? When the boxer is really fresh, the boxer is moving and adjusting to every little tiny details. As you, as the boxer gets tired, it starts becoming in a, you know, at a slower pace, more constant. So this proxy is very indicative of how rested you are. So to give you an idea is you, let's say you have a certain number as, as baseline, call it 60. If tomorrow you go and you run a marathon, the following day, this number will go down because your heart rate is tired. Right. Well, instead, if you rest for a couple of days, this number will go up. Ah, okay. Can you look at heart rate variability on like yeah. watch and stuff? Yeah. You can, yeah. You can. It has become a really popular metric because it is a proxy for, for recovery. And so athletes have used it for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Now all of these consumer devices use it as well. And what we do is obviously you don't have to wear anything. It's tracking it for you as well. Yeah. Now, the reason why all of these things exist is first because 
if you go to a sleep clinic, um, you would be using these same metrics to do that reported sleep clinic. So yeah. we sort of like took the sleep clinic and just like brought it home. And the only thing we're missing is those brain waves. Yeah. Right. But like we are taking the same metrics and saying, well, the same things you would discover at a clinic yeah. that you would probably, you know, at least in the United States yeah. have to pay a lot of money for mm-hmm. and have to find insurance to pay for. You do it at home. You do it every night. Um, and then on top of that, as Matilda was describing, you also get this benefit that not only do you get all of the sleep staging classification and sleep quality, but you are getting that same metric that you get on a wearable without the wearable heart rate, mm-hmm. rest, respiratory rate, heart variability, which like he mentioned, there's the disease, sort of like the intervention of like one man getting sick and like getting stressed. We also see, you know, women during pregnancy, like their heart rates change, uh, yeah. carrying like two heartbeats in your body, your body's more is sort of doing extra work, but you can also see the trends over time. Like we have a lot of our members who t- they tend to reach out to Mateo personally or DM him on Twitter and say, Hey, um, I either like was getting sick and was able to notice it on my, on my eight sleep pod because I've been sleeping on it for so long. So yeah. you have trended data that maybe before the wearable era, before the eight sleep product type era, you would only get it when you were going to the doctor, right? You go to the yeah. doctor, they take all your biometrics. Now you have them at home. A few weeks ago, we saved the, the first life. Uh, oh, so I asked him to reach out to me and he said, look, uh, I was not feeling great. I checked my data on eight sleep. I saw that the biometrics were all over the place compared to my usual baseline. I went straight to ER and they found an issue. I had a surgery and that saved my life. A and, cardiac uh, surgery. So yeah. this is a problem to the heart. So, <laughs> yeah. so that is an example. And, and then other people wrote me because uh, we helped them with COVID, uh, both by you know, measuring the biometrics and through temperature. Um, we see people with cancers uh, using our product, uh, both because of temperature, because they have hot flashes, and also because we measure their biometrics, women in menopause. Um, at the end of the day, what you will see happening in the next three to five years is medical devices and consumer devices are merging, mm-hmm. right? Apple Watch is not competing with Rolex. This is not really a watch. Yeah, it was of the time, but at the end of the day, it's a medical device to continuously track your health. Our device does the same, but the advantage is you use it every single day because you go to bed every single day, right? And what you will be able to build is you are, you are building a database of your health that you will be able to share with your doctor so the doctor will have a snapshot immediately of anything that is happening in your body, knowing what the baseline is. And you will also know how you're aging because your heart rate today is different from your heart rate in three years from now and 10 years from now. And we'll be able to let you know how you're doing compared to other peers. And then machine learning and AI will be able to predict the likelihood you develop a certain type of disease. All this is coming. The step zero is always to collect the data in an accurate way, which is happening across the board. And then is when technology will really deliver the next value. Yeah. Think of computers in the 70s when they were not connected to the internet. People would say, hey, why do I need these? How can this be helpful? But then as once that everyone in the world started having a computer and then there was the internet and then the mobile innovation, yeah. and now everyone has a phone in their hands, which is a computer. Yeah. That's a great, yeah. So, like, even when I was uh, when I was working as a doctor, there was a lot of talk around personalized pharmacology, like personalized medication, because mm. it's just a bit weird that we take the same dose for and occasionally for a drug. That's like if you are between thirty kg and one hundred and fifty kg, take this dose. That's such a huge range, yeah. and people are like, yeah. At, at some point, we're going to be able to have more personalized therapies, and I guess this is just that, except for all of your health data. Exactly. It would be like uh, getting a physical exam 
every single night. You know, when they in the past, uh, to our parents, they used to say, oh, you should go to the doctor once a year to do you know, yeah. the basic exams. This thing is going to happen every single night. Mm. And the data will can be compared across millions of people at the same time. So medicine will just move faster, right? We have an advisory board with some of the best sleep professors in the world, people from Harvard, Stanford, UPenn, Columbia. And the reason why they joined the board is in one night, we collect more data than what they have seen in their whole career. Mm. Yeah, a friend of mine at, at university who's also a doctor was having some issues with sleeping. I was like, oh yeah, I have to sleep like 11 hours a night, it doesn't work. And so she did this kind of sleep clinic study mm. thing at like one of the local hospitals. And it was such a huge like song and dance. She had to take like three days off. It was like a whole thing. They could yeah. only do like two patients at a time. Ridiculously expensive. Obviously the NHS paid for it, so she didn't have to pay. And then she had to, like she was ill one of the days, so she had to cancel the appointment. And we were just thinking, my God, like how much did it cost the system to cancel that appointment? And all they were doing was cameras and heart rate and yeah. put a thing on her head and like- That would be replaced. Yeah. Right, devices like us. But let me tell you also this. There is, you know what is sleep apnea, right? So it's this difficulty to breathe during the night. And this is going to impact your sleep quality and can also have a negative impact on your brain. And definitely it will make sure that you don't feel good when you wake up because you didn't have proper sleep. Yeah. So there are uh, a billion people in the world with sleep apnea. Do you want to know how many? A billion? Yeah. No, we want to know how many don't know they have sleep apnea, 90% of yeah. that. And the reason is simple. A lot of people, they guess they have it because usually it's the partner noticing it, but they don't want to go through the same experience of your friend. They yeah. don't want to go to the doctor, get the recommendation and the prescription for a sleep study, go in a hospital, sleep there, covered with sensors. No one wants to do that. Yeah. And so they say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I have sleep apnea, maybe not, but who cares? Let's move on. And 90% of people with sleep apnea, again, a billion people, don't know. Damn. Um, why, why is sleep apnea bad? Sleep apnea is bad because substantially um, oxygen is not properly circulating in your body. It doesn't get to your brain. It, usually, you know, when you have sleep apnea, you tend to do the, oh, right? right? There's some snoring. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like snoring 2.0, yeah. but to a point where oxygen doesn't get to the brain. And this is going to impact all your your whole sleep staging. And so you're not going to get the proper amount of deep sleep and you're not going to get the proper amount of REM. Even if you sleep 11 hours, mm. you have the sleep quality of someone who's like a couple of hours. Yeah. And it's, it, it degenerates, right? So it is a disease and a condition that like will just get worse over time, will get worse with aging. Yeah. It is highly correlated with being overweight or obese, but th th it's just not because of that, right? So like there are also people who may be like good with their weight, but they have it. Um, and so it's really hard to catch. Like it's, it's such like sort of like a silent killer. Yeah. Um, one critique I've heard of this whole like data ifying all of our health data is similar to what some people say around blood tests. So the, in, in the U S there seems to be a culture of like, see your doctor every year and get a biomarkers, et cetera, et cetera. In the UK, it's a bit more like, uh, don't, don't see your doctor unless you have a problem and then you'll do a blood test because what's the point of doing a blood test every, like maybe you'll catch an incidental thing, which is like, wasn't affecting your life anyway. What's the point of doing an MRI every year? Because a lot of the incidental tumors that you might find will never cause a problem. And so you're wasting a lot of healthcare resources in doing these pointless tests and you're making people feel anxious about their health because now they have all the data all the time. How do you guys deal with that? that well, before you go, because I know you have very strong opinions, but I'd say, 
I would pay attention to who is saying that, right? Like, obviously, depending on the health system in every country, the recommendation will be different. But like, when it is the government who needs to provide all these services, and that's based on your taxation and all that, well, they're going to try to keep you away from going into the system because it costs money. But the reality is you care about your body. And so who should you be listening to? And would, wouldn't it be better if you knew, even if that tumor or that, you know, cyst or that muscular uh, issue was there, wouldn't you prefer to know that not know that something is happening to you? I think the answer to me is, uh, I don't know how many people know that, but um, if you have pancreatic cancer and you detect it early, you have 90% chances to live. If you detect it late, you have 90% chances to die. And so assuming you want to keep living your life, you want to spend time with your loved ones, uh, knowing what's happening in your body and optimizing your health, I just think is in the best interest of all of us. This will help you not just to extend your lifespan, but to extend your health span, right? My grandma, I think she dies in the 90s. And I mean, when, when she was 90 years old in 1995, but she spent the last 20 years of her life really sitting on a chair. She had an ictus. It was one night that uh, she this this happened, right? So she had a, an arterial problem, and since then she couldn't move uh, no part of her body. That could have been avoided, and she could have lived uh, you no know, twenty years of her life being dynamic and spending that time with her grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. I d- a few a few years ago, I d- I discovered just the world of anti aging and longevity and stuff. And yeah. before then, I just hadn't considered it. I, I, I always just yeah. thought, oh, I, you know, I guess I guess we die, yeah. whatever. And then I was, I started reading the stuff. I was like, oh yeah. my God, of course we want to live longer yeah. and healthier. Like, why wouldn't you? Like, because sometimes people tell me, oh, I don't want to live longer. Fine. But do you want to enjoy your life up to the last day? Yeah. Right. Because I don't think you want to sit on a chair in front of the TV for 20 years of your life, right? From 65 or 70 to 90. Right. So this is why this matters. Then you don't have to look at the metrics every single day. Some people, even some customers, few of them, but uh, say, oh, I, I feel anxious with the data. And that is an advantage of our product because you don't see it, you don't wear it, yeah. right? And so the data is there. Whenever that is needed, share it with your doctor and the doctor will be able to take better actions. Mm. Even if you go for you know, the more UK approach that you were describing, where, oh, look, I don't want to know anything until <laughs> when I need <laughs> to know. Problem, yeah. That day having the baseline of your data from the past 20 years will become relevant. And so let these devices do their job in the background, even if you don't open the app. But that day when something happened, because it will happen, then your doctor, you will be able to provide your doctor more information to help you live a longer and healthier life. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing just how often we used to have this issue with, with patients that would come in, have some like chest pain or something, and you do an ECG or EKG. And you would see something weird, like, oh, there's a bit of ST elevation there, like, uh, I'm normally sure. And you're like, okay, what's their baseline? No one knows. Don't know. It's like, have they ever had an ECG before? Maybe, but like, maybe it was a different hospital. Mm, systems don't talk to each other. They've probably never had one before. And like, oh, shit, okay, well, how bad is this thing? Okay, we should probably just keep them in overnight for the next five days anyway, put them on cardiac monitoring just in case, dot, 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 dot. And then there's a cost to that, right? <laughs> yeah, so, like, it's still going to cost something yeah. to the system. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm massively bullish on knowing the health data for myself yeah. because like, yes, if I was trying to run a government funded healthcare system, I wouldn't want to do it for all 70 million people in the UK because it's a lot of money and maybe the ROI of that's not great. But as an individual, I'm sure, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to 
kind of maximize this. Um, okay, uh, so heart rate, heart rate variability, respir- respiratory rate. Presumably, the sensors in the mattress are looking at those things and figuring out what stage of sleep you're in. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say? Yeah, together with movement mm. and temperature. Movement and temperature. Okay. Yeah. So for, for someone who's, who doesn't know much about the space, like what are the different stages of sleep and what are, like, how, how do you know that we are in set stages of sleep? Yeah. So I always say there is a medical explanation where I could be more technical, yeah. but it's boring and probably not the most that helpful. But the bottom line is you have what is called light sleep. This is the, the pitch I would give to my grandma. Okay. So you have the light sleep and then you have deep and then you have REM. Okay. Right. What you really care about is the amount of deep and the amount of REM. Okay. Both in terms of time, like an hour plus, whatever, depends on how long you sleep. And then it's also percentage. Right. So for me, for example, specifically anything below 18% deep sleep, assuming I sleep eight hours, I, I will wake up feeling terrible. Between 18 and 21, I feel pretty good. And above 21, I'm a superhero. Um, and you figure that out for yourself yeah. by looking at your stats yeah. being like, oh, why do I feel so good today? And it's like, exactly. oh, shit, I have 20, 23 percent Exactly. Okay. But usually the range recommended is anywhere between 15 and 25. Okay. And then it can be different. Deep sleep. So this what percentage sleep. of your sleep time you are in deep sleep mode? Okay. Anywhere between, recommended is anywhere between 15 and 25. Okay. Uh, and then the RAM is very similar in terms of uh, ranges, uh, usually slightly higher, so more in the 20 to 25, but it could go as low as 15. Then things change because, for example, if you're sleep deprived, let's say that uh, tonight you don't sleep for whatever reason because you're in the hospital, you can't sleep, and tomorrow you finally sleep. Uh, the first thing that your body uh, will uh, prioritize is deep sleep. Okay. And so tomorrow night you will get way more deep sleep than REM. Deep sleep is usually the physical recovery for your body, while instead the REM is the mental recovery. REM is when you're dreaming, REM is when your brain is reassessing all the information that collected during the day and is putting the information in the library. So you're developing memory and all that kind of thing. But the number one thing that your body will always give priority to is deep sleep because it's the physical performance that your body physically needs to recover first and then your brain will recover. Right. So is, is light sleep important at all or is that just a gateway to deep and REM? In reality, it's not that important. It's just that your body is inefficient and you end up with 50% of the time asleep being light sleep or awake. Okay. And that is why we have this hypothesis where we can compress your sleep because we believe we can make you more efficient by helping you to fall asleep faster, get more deep sleep faster, mm-hmm. and we can compress the amount of light sleep you need. Love it. And so, okay, so deep sleep and REM sleep, what is, and I guess light sleep, in these three stages, what is happening to the stats that help you figure out what stage we're in? So REM is the easiest to detect because you're now moving, mm-hmm. but your heart rate is accelerated. Because you're probably dreaming, or anyway, you're in a certain physical... Yeah, and that's where if people wake up, they have sleep paralysis, because they're like, oh, shit, I can't move, and what's going on? Exactly. Okay. Because your brain deactivates the, the movement of the body because you're dreaming. Otherwise, you could start walking, or you could start moving yeah. your arms. Right? So, are you, are you like, like, dead still? Yeah. So, on the sensors, there's, like, no movement? Yeah. But the heart is accelerated. Okay. Fine. Because something is happening in your brain, okay. right? So, that is the easiest... Then um, you have deep sleep, while well, instead usually is when your heart rate goes uh, to the lowest point. And so a certain type of biometric, like respiration is really slow, um, and heart rate is really slow, yeah. and usually you're not moving, you're not 
completely still, but obviously the amount of movement of your body is, uh, you're not tossing and turning. Okay. Um, instead, light sleep, uh, your heart rate and respiration have a different behavior and pattern. Then the best way to track your sleep would be also to combine these biometrics with brainwaves, mm. uh, which is not they tell you about your electrical activity in your brain. Yeah. But customers don't want to wear a, a band, <laughs> yeah. right? So there were a couple of startups that tried to develop these bands uh, to try to be more accurate at sleep detection. But the reality is they failed because customers don't want mm. to wear this device every night. Yeah. Okay. So gold standard would be with the with the brain brain brain, brain yeah. wave monitor, which is what they do in sleep studies. Yeah. But like realistically, no one can be asked. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. But the reality is, all devices like us will be medical grade at heart rate and cardiovascular diseases. Right, so heart rate and HRV will be medical grade and respiration, which means snoring, sleep apnea. Uh, you can be medical grade at temperature, and that is valuable because you can see pregnancy. Obviously, if you have fever, um, hot flashes, things like that. Yeah. Sleep, even if you go in a sleep clinic, usually the average accuracy is around 80%. So, medical grade accuracy is 80%. Mm. Um, and that can be achieved uh, uh, by devices like us by combining all these different metrics, even if you don't have uh, brainwaves. Nice. Bit of a random question. Let's say someone's listening to this. They can't afford the eight sleep mattress, and, but they're a bit of a, you know, I like computers, like stuff. How hard is it to build a smart mattress in your bedroom? Like, wh- what do you need? <laughs> Yeah. How, did, how did Max do it? In, yeah, one, eight years ago. <laughs> Max would probably talk more about that, but it's the the hardware is probably not the like the hardest part, like putting together some sensors. And you know, we slept on the very first prototypes when we started the company. We moved to San Francisco for the first year. Uh, we used to have all the first prototypes. We were our office was a, an apartment, so in the bedroom where we slept, you know, it was all the first prototypes. And so, you know, someone could put it together. It's the algorithms. Mm-hmm. We've spent now so many years of the company collecting that information, training these algorithms, working in partnerships with universities or with companies that do medical grade devices to actually feed that sort of gold standard information yeah. into the training of our algorithms. And that just takes a long time. And it's really hard to do it with this like contactless, right? Yeah. With sensors. Like that's not easy. Mm, okay. But we challenge anyone to do it. I think yeah. it's really fascinating. <laughs> The other big challenge is usually when you want to start scaling, right? Yeah. If you want to build one device, you can build it probably at home. You could, it's very hard, but you can try. The, the biggest challenge, the hard lesson that we have learned is once you start moving thousands of units per month, uh, uh, getting a level of quality yeah. that applies in an equivalent way to all the units, yeah. that is really hard. Mm, yeah. So I guess the first prototypes, you're like hacking together Raspberry Pi with some random ass sensors and you, you're like, all right, yeah. we've got this data. What, what the hell does it mean? It's like, yeah. maybe you grow it, like, okay, roughly. Yeah. But over time, it becomes yeah. a more sophisticated yeah. system. And the other challenge is like everything in life, right? Going from zero to 80, you can do it, but the last 20% is really, really hard. So yeah. in terms of accuracy, getting maybe to 70, 80%, you can get there, but yeah. getting to 99 is really hard and 80% accuracy is not that valuable. No, fair play. Okay, so we've got the device, we've got the sensors, and we can now tell with 99% certainty, are we in light sleep, are we in deep sleep, are we in REM sleep? Why Why is that good? Like, what, what action are we taking from that? In our specific case, which is the main difference compared to wearables, is we adjust temperature, right? Because each, if each sleep stage needs a different type of temperature. As we were saying, deep should be colder, REM should be warmer, neutral. Yeah. Uh, and that is how we give you 
up to 34% more deep sleep and up to 32% better sleep quality. So is it like liquid nitrogen going through the mattress? Like what's 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 going on in yeah. prototype V1 that you could make in 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 a in your back backyard? <laughs> you can use water. Okay. Uh, that is what we use. So you need to build a thermal engine. The thermal engine can heat and cool this water, and so the algo is detecting the different stages, and yeah. based on the stage, can automatically adjust the temperature and warm you up or cool you down. Yeah, yeah. So my sister-in-law got an eight sleep um, mattress as a birthday present a few months ago, and it came with this little tank thing. Yeah. Um, and she just swears by it now. And she's like, last night, my brother switched it off because they're married. Um, and she was, she was just livid. She was like, woke up in the morning. She was like, why did I sleep so badly? And he was like, oh, sorry, I switched yeah. it off. And she was like, oh my, why did you switch it off? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so she is now a massive supporter of, uh, of aid sleep. Um, so, okay, so you figure out what stage of sleep you're in and then you modulate the temperature of the bed accordingly. And you, I guess you can see before and after and you can run... I suppose if you wanted to, you could randomize a group of people to not do that, like one of the nights yeah. or something, and see what difference does it make yeah. to, to these did it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we had um, several hundreds people uh, where we tracked their sleep data before using the pod and after using the pod. Okay. And what we saw was up to the 34% more deep sleep, up to 32% better sleep quality, up to 19% recovery. Then there was another interesting discovery. So we are able to slow down your heart rate by up to two heartbeats per minute. Okay. To give you an idea, that is the equivalent of three months of intense training. <laughs> and we give it to you in the first week. Yeah. The other thing is we are able to improve your HRV, we were talking about mm-hmm. HRV, to an equivalent of what your HRV was 10 years earlier. So okay. we make your HRV stats 10 years younger. Mm. And sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, please. There's to be clear, it's not that we reinvented the wheels. There is plenty of medical evidence that proves that thermoregulation improves sleep. Yeah. So this was already proven before eight sleep. Eight yeah. sleep was just the first device to really bring this to consumer on a large scale and making sure that people like you, like us, like your sister can just get back to sleep. Um, heart rate variability. So I, w- I was interviewing someone yesterday who's a neuroscientist who talks about like performance and leadership and stuff. And talked a lot about heart rate variability as being like a marker of stress. Yep. Um, what's what's going on there for, for people that might not be familiar? Like yep. why, why is it a marker of stress? It's a market of physical stress, not of mental stress. Okay. Right? If you're stressed or not, that is not gonna be reflected. It, it can be directionally reflected, but the number one thing is physical stress. So uh, the example I always make is the one of the marathon, right? So if you do a marathon today, tomorrow will be reflected in your HRV and your HRV will be worse than what it usually is. Okay. But instead, if you are fully rested, your HRV will go up and up usually is a positive sign for HRV. Okay. So you want a low heart rate, but a high heart rate variability because yeah. that, exactly. that shows that your heart rate is more reactive to the things that you're doing, which shows that you have you're just more rested, exactly. like, like your boxer analogy, being a bit more reactive. Yeah. Correct. And so heart rate variability is... Is that a stat that changes throughout the day, the heart rate variability, or is it like... It changes during the day, okay, and it changes during the night. Okay. So also a way to look at that is to look at the delta of what your HRV was in the first deep sleep yep. and in the last deep sleep, and that mm-hmm. is a proxy of recovery. But the bottom line is, yeah, it changes during the day and during the night. Okay, and so if it's high during the day, that means... In the morning. The, yeah. the, when you want to measure it is when you wake up. Okay. That is the most important. And wow. the higher, the better. The higher, the better when you wake up. 
and you and the eight sleep mattress does that because it tells you what it was just before yeah. you woke up. Yeah. Imagine that it's like a tank of energy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is just an analogy, right? Yeah. Um, from a medical standpoint, it's not like that. But imagine that it's a tank of energy and, you know, the higher the better because it's full, the lower the worse because it's empty. Yeah. If you have a marathon the previous day, it yeah. will be empty. Okay. Now, an important thing that a lot of people that we see, especially on Twitter where our community shares their stats, is they say, well, you have a really high HRV, but my HRV is not there. It's like it varies with age. Right, so there's sort of yeah. like different ranges that are considered yeah. to yeah. be like healthy versus if you're like an athlete, like athletes tend to have it higher. But also, it's important to build your personal baseline. Yeah, it's and very you, personal. Yeah, it's very personal, and you want to compare it to your own baseline and how it trends over time. We cannot compare mine and yours. Yeah. Well, instead of for HR and for heart rate of rest, you can more or less do it. For HRV, it's completely personal. You need the baseline, and then it's above or below your baseline. Mm, okay. Is there anything we can do like during the day to affect our heart rate variability? Or so, okay, so is is heart rate variability more like a lagging indicator, or if if you were to just change it magically, would it actually make you feel better in any any kind of way? It's you usually imagine that is a proxy for how for recovery. How recovery is your body? Okay. So. The way you can increase it is by resting today and tomorrow will very likely be higher. Yeah. Um, it's proven that through meditation, you can help HRV as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really rest and recovery. And the other thing you want to pay attention is if you're training a lot, you want to measure it because if it's too low is when you might risk injuries. Mm, because the tank is low and that means you're less recovered and so you yeah. need a bit more rest. To be overtraining. Exactly. Yeah. But there is a bit of a lag. Like if you if you begin during training, especially the types of training that Tom was describing earlier with like high intensity interval training, like strength training, you should start seeing an improvement in your HRV over time. It's yeah. like your body really is becoming that more reactive. You're becoming more athletic physically with your body. And so there is some lag in some of these influential factors into your HRV. Nice. This is a bit of a bit of a long shot. Oh, potentially. Um sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system how does that tie into this sort of stuff if at all yeah they're connected and they're connected in the way you sleep but even those are super personal and they can um, change over time Um, but they are also connected to metrics like hrv and hr yeah so this is what i was talking to about with, with this neuroscientist yesterday she was she was saying that a lot of people who are in high stress jobs like traders and things will will be in sort of stress mode i.e. sympathetic activation for most of the day. And then they get home, they're like, oh, you know, and they're even more stressed because they haven't spent enough time with the kids and all that kind of stuff. And you can see that reflected in a high heart rate and presumably a low heart rate variability because now it's, exactly. they're in like kind of yeah. cortisol, yeah. high blood pressure mode. Yeah. Which is where sleep helps you, right? Because we can reduce your heart rate, as I was saying, by up to two heartbeats per yeah. minute and we can increase your HRV making you 10 years younger. So temperature is an intervention to potentially get you from that like fight or flight to the state where your body says, okay, now I'm in a protected space. I can rest. Yeah. Temperature can have that effect. But it's sort of like when you think very basically, right? Evolutionary, we used to sleep outdoors and caves and temperature was such a big indicator of our ability to like, is there fire? Animals are going to stay away. I'm going to be protected. What's yeah. that heat like, right? And so it's just like so fascinating how our bodies have evolved to use temperature and light as just an indicator of like, if I'm protected, I can fall asleep, I can yeah. rest, I can go into that room where I'm not moving versus yeah. no, I'm not protected. I need to stay tight of light. 
Nice. And I give you a hack for sleep. Oh, yes. But it's, it, it does, it's really hard to be able to do it because unless probably you're in a hotel. But if you want to improve your sleep quality in other ways to do a sauna, a cold plunge, a sauna, a cold plunge, and going to bed. <laughs> and so this thermal shock yeah. helps you relax and fall asleep faster and get better sleep. Mm. And the reason, so Peter Atia talks about that as well, and there is plenty of evidence. The reason why I'm mentioning this is thermal shock. So playing with your body temperature is proven in different degrees to have a massive impact on your systems and its sleep quality. Mm. So if you are in a hotel where they have a sauna and a cold plunge, you should try to do that and you will sleep like a baby. You can also try bath, right? You could do bath in a cold shower. Yeah. So to an extent, that could be helpful. Yeah. Mm, nice. Uh, okay, so I have been um, talking to a few people about, about Sleep, and they look at the website, and they look at the price tag, and then they think, oh, my God, like, it's, it's complete non-starter. Um, but also, in fairness, people would have looked at the price tag for the Tesla Roadster and thought, what the fuck? Uh, how do you guys think about pricing? It's a very premium product that most people can't afford, and yet, presumably, your impact, your, your, the, the mission is to, to help more people. Yeah. What's going on there? I have two answers. Yes. Okay. And, and I start from the consumer answer and then why we are priced like, yeah. like that. So if you finance our product, I think it's around 60 bucks a month. That is two bucks per night. It's less than a coffee. So if you care about your sleep and you assume that what we are telling you is true, that we improve your sleep, which is true, clearly, are you going to pay two bucks a night to get better sleep and improve your health and improve your daily performance? That That is the question I would make. Then... The reason why it's priced like that is because uh, the the type of technology that we use is really advanced, and for the time being, it's still expensive. It's not that we are having any different margin from what an average company would have. So we're just running a business, and we need to be able to you know sustain the business so we can keep evolving that. As you were saying, we always make reference to Tesla. Our largest investor was the first investor in Tesla. So this is our roadster. Price will go down over time. But at the end of the day, you're using one of the most sophisticated technologies on earth. And for now, uh, the only way to run a business is to run it at that price. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, what's the, what does the roadmap look like? If you can share some details. <laughs> um, there will be Model S coming, yeah. <laughs> right? Going back to the Tesla analogy. Uh, over time, the price will become more and more affordable, right? We want to democratize health and sleep. Um, but then there are another bunch of products that we are working on. Some of them still focus on thermoregulation because there is plenty of medical evidence that it helps. But the end goal is uh, a device where Alexandra and I were already sleeping in, where we control light and noise. In the future, we will control oxygen, air quality, and air temperature. And we will do a full body scanning every single night. So expect in three to five years from now to do a substantially MRI every single day nice. and potentially detect things like cancer, kidney stones, and cysts. Sick. How, how do I get on the beta tester list? <laughs> Everyone wants that. But as co-founders, we are the only yeah. ones. Yeah. The only ones, the only ones are allowed for now. For now. Um, well, one of the things that I read was that you had some difficulties building the company initially and both of you being, I guess, quite foreigners in America. What was that experience like in the, in the early days? Yeah, so... I mean, first, uh, uh, none of us graduated from uh, the big Ivy League uh, universities in, in the U.S. Um, in my case, I also had this weird background as a business lawyer, and I was coming from a different industry. So any, I would say, 
credibility I had built before was not really applying to Silicon Valley because I didn't know anyone in Silicon Valley and I think it was very similar for you. And so I think it's just part of the game, right? In Silicon Valley, a lot is about reputation and trust. People are giving you money because they believe that you're a great founder and you can make something happen that no one else could build. Yeah. And so they always try the best investors to find data points about you. But they do it in a, in a positive way, right? And so usually going, I don't know, to certain universities or talking to other people that know you um, is really important in the Valley. And we didn't have that at the beginning. But then I think over time, we built hopefully that reputation through Y Combinator, then uh, Cosla Ventures investing with Keith Travois and then Thunder's Fund, right? So one little step at a time, um, I, 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 I think now we... Probably there is enough data points yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think it's so incredible. And, and we hear often, you know, Matteo being from Italy, our co-founder Max is also from Italy, and he has actually, he dropped out of school in, in Italy, started mm-hmm. building businesses pretty early on, which is, is a rarity, I think, in, in Europe in general for people who drop out of college, and he did it. And so none of us had any of that sort of that pattern match that Matteo's describing. But then it's incredible to think that it may have taken us a little longer, but once we launched our crowdfunding campaign in 2015, who... Um, actually, we uh, that was available internationally, so there may be some people listening to this who got our very, very first product. Um, once we launched that, that campaign was really successful. It quickly made over a million dollars in sales and ended up closing close to two million in pre-orders. Then that was that pattern that people needed to see to say, well, these people who are building this thing that maybe we didn't think they could deliver actually are building something people want. Yeah. And that's when things really started changing for us. And it's incredible that there's still that opportunity, and especially we see it in Silicon Valley where trust can be built through that hard work and through actually proving that you are building something people want to pay for and you can kind of get into the network that you're looking to get into just through that work. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we ended up then raising 160 million over time, right? From most of the best investors in the Valley. Yeah. And so I think coming from Italy and coming from Europe, that was uh, one of the most um, impressive things I have learned about the U.S. where if you work hard and if you prove yourself, then the opportunity will come. So yeah, maybe the first years we had some challenges, others didn't, but then at the end of the day, the opportunity was still there and we, we have proven it, which means that anyone else can have access to the same. Nice. Um, any advice for budding entrepreneurs that love kind of the story? They're like, oh yeah, this sounds sick. You, you, you take an idea, you literally invent a thing and then it's like worth $500 million. Like any, any top tips for, for, for people who want to, want to get into the entrepreneurship thing? Um, I mean, keep going, keep building, right? That is what I always say that, you know, is running a company is like a roller coaster. There are ups and downs and you should then fool yourself when there are the ups, but you shouldn't be depressed when there are the downs, right? At the end of the day, you need to just find the median and the average and and stick with that. What sort of downs have you guys had? Um, Every down you can think of, uh, <laughs> multiple times, not even a single time, but you go, particularly with hardware, right? There was a big hype at the beginning. Then there was a time where a lot of hardware companies failed. So it was really, really hard to raise money unless you were having incredible metrics. We were able to raise that money at the time, but again, particularly when you raise money, you should always think that you meet 100 investors, 99 will say no, and one is going to say yes. Oh, okay. And so if you just think mentally, getting 99 no's is tough. 
because you have a dream, you have a vision, you believe in that, you know how hard your team is working and how great they are, and you're just being not hit in the face, uh, punched in the face with no, no, no. And at the end of the day, it's something like, it's, it's not about you from the investors, but it's something like saying, look, you know, maybe this could be a good business, but maybe it's not going to be a billion dollar business, yeah. but you just need one yes. So just keep going. What other uh, downs have you had to make, uh, maybe outside the realm of, of fundraising? I think I would say probably that after building the first product, right? Like when, when you're early on, and, and the reason why capital is talking a lot about investors is so important is because we are innovating. So there's a lot of like yeah. R&D investment in building the product. But the ultimate proxy success of business is whether people are buying it and how much are they willing to pay for it, right? And so that's where you, you keep a lot of your focus on the day-to-day. But in, in those in that early stage, that first year, we did a crowdfunding campaign and we put out the concept. We have built prototypes of this product and we had shown it to a lot of people. We put it out there. And there's like all these people who want to buy it. And now we're like, well, we have to build this product. And we went through Y Combinator. We had this amazing opportunity after getting rejected twice to get in, right? So again, the no, no, no. And then you finally get a yes. Um, and after we finished Y Combinator, they said, well, now you need to go and like build these products. And Mateo and Max moved to China to build a team there to actually manufacture these products. And, you know, those, those months are, are really hard because even though maybe now you've raised money, um, you know, money is not the angle. You need to build this product and ship it and willing to love it. And there need to be more people buying it. And so there were a lot of challenges to figure out there. It was a completely new space for us. None of us have built hardware products before. Then you get that product and you need to ship it. And then maybe you start seeing issues or maybe it's not the product that you ultimately want to build because what we discovered very early on when we built that product is that uh, that product was tracking your data, but it didn't have the cooling functionality, which was key to do full thermal regulation. And that was the number one request that those early backers of the company that built, uh, that uh, funded us with our crowdfunding campaign requ- requested, right? They said, give us cooling, give us cooling. And so in the back of your mind as an entrepreneur, you say, well, I, I don't have that yet. And, and I don't have the money to build it. And I don't have the team to build it, right? And so it was sort of the throw up sorrows that Y Combinator talks about. It's like, you're going through this period of time and it's really, really hard. And you want to get to the next milestone. You want to prove that then you can raise capital to then build the product that now, you know, people really want is the next step. Yeah. It's, it seems like hardware is just super tough. Yeah. Like, and especially when you're like, you and Max moved to China. Like, yeah. how, what's the story there? Like? Yeah, so the story is I go to her and I say, look, uh, things are not happening in manufacturing. I need to go to China. And so she says, oh, cool. When are you going to go? And I say, tomorrow. And she say, oh, cool. And when are you back? And I say, once I fix it. Uh, <laughs> and so I came back uh, three, four months later. Right. Um, after so were you trying to remotely manufacture from factories in China initially? Yeah, we had another person who was there, yeah. uh, but he needed some help yeah. uh, there to, to make sure we could accelerate things. And so I just moved. Uh, I just moved there. Uh, we rented an apartment in Shenzhen, yeah. and we lived there. Um, so actually, it was a great experience for me. Right now, I can look back and say, like, <laughs> I, I lived for some time in China. Yeah. But hardware is really hard for a couple of reasons. First, you need a lot of capital, yeah. right, both to develop it. Second, it's really slow compared to software. Software, you can release a feature in one yeah. night. That thing, usually, if you're really fast, you can release a new product every year. Yeah. The average company needs eighteen to twenty-four months. Uh, to release a new hardware. Yeah. Um, you need more departments because you need obviously people for supply chain, people for quality, people for manufacturing, all the logistic while inside a software company doesn't have that cost. Yeah. So even the fixed cost of personnel you know, employees is, is way higher. And more than anything, you need to be able to forecast demand. 
because yeah. right from now the holidays is coming. How much are we gonna sell? You need to build that unit. If you underbuild, then you don't sell. If yeah. you overbuild, then you have this inventory in your balance sheet. And so the complexity of the business uh, is, uh, is is very different. As a CEO, is exciting, but at the same time, is also demanding. It's very rewarding because then people do use it at home. Yeah. And that is, I think, something fascinating. We talk about this a lot, Mateo and I, because hardware is really hard. It has the word hard in it. And <laughs> so, like, it really is really complex. But it's fascinating when you know, we go to a restaurant. We were there a few months ago in San Francisco at a restaurant with part of our team. And some of us were wearing swag from the company. We had the logo. And the waiter who was um, um, serving our table said, oh, I see you all work at Eight Sleep. And he said, I have a pod and I love it. And it's just so incredible. And it happens to us often. We have people on the team who are boarding a plane at an airport and be like, oh, you work at Eight Sleep. And, and so it's just really cool to think that you go through all the hardships, which I think any kind of business goes through, even a small business, right? Even non-venture backed. But then you're building something in our case that helps people sleep better, live healthier. It's like a physical product. They get to use it every day. And I think it's part of what keeps us here is yeah. such a unique journey. Yeah, that's really cool. Like I, we're um, kind of dabbling with working with a company to try and make some hardware stuff now, um, like productivity accessories and like trying to manufacture our own mechanical keyboard for a computer and just... Just something about physical product that seems really cool because it's like always with you. Yeah. In a way that software isn't, even though software is way easier. Um, that's really cool. Um, so, team would have grown from the three of you to now 100 plus. What were the the challenges in, I guess, um, scaling up the, the 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 team over time? Um, challenges is always at the end of the day culture. Meaning, when you build a company, it's like you cannot be friends with everyone. Right? You have your own culture, you have your own attitude. I come from sports, so um, you know, we call our our culture demanding and supportive. I'm really demanding in expectations. Then if things don't go as planned, I will be supportive and I will have your back. Yeah. But I expect you to give 100%, mm-hmm. right? And so you need to find people that you know, share the same values, not because they are right or wrong, but because this is how we are yeah. uh, as a founders and uh, as a founding team. Um, and so in the early days, probably we made also a bunch of mistakes in hiring. No, we never hired bad people, but maybe they were not the type of people that were mm-hmm. the perfect fit. I think now we became way better at that. But even in the past two years, the, the quality of people that we have hired is, is, is really impressive. Mm. If we, if you guys think of like, you know, your, the, like, okay. So in, in every company, there are some, people in your team that you think, oh, if I could clone you a hundred times over, I would press that button a zillion times. What are the characteristics of those sorts of people? And I'm asking because someone listening to this has probably got a normal job and they probably want to be an A, an a player in the normal job, but they might not know, like, what, what does an A player actually look like? So so for you in, in, in Aid Sleep, like, what are the things that make someone just absolute rock star where you're just like... I want to clone this person a million times over. There's one indicator. We talked about this like last week that I told you I identified. This applies for people who start with us when they're a little bit earlier in their career. Because mm-hmm. then executives are different and you can talk about that, which is really fascinating. But for people who are earlier in their career, what you notice in in, in what we have seen at Eight Sleep is that every six to 12 months, this person is different. Because their rate of growth and learning is so steep. And they're just changing. They're becoming better. 
at a rate that is just outpacing anyone else. And so when we look at these people, you know, you have these sort of cohort of employees that maybe join the same year, you say, wow, this person right here is completely different. They're, they've just matured. They've changed. This other person hasn't. They're not growing at the same rate. And that to me has become like the quickest way to see how there's like a real rock star versus just someone who could be really great and solid. And 80-20 is usually they care, they have high intensity, they have velocity, and they grow. But we have five elements that I measure, particularly on executives. The first one is what is called clarity of thinking. So the, the quality of setting the priorities and the order at which you will attach them. Right? So what to do and in what order. Quality of thinking. Yeah. The second is what I call managerial efficiency. So the ability to do less, uh, to do more with less. If you think what we are doing where we are in revenue, no more than nine digits uh, uh, run rate, uh, being 100 people in hardware is very small. Yeah. We're really, really efficient. Yeah. And that is reflected in our bottom line and then how much we burn and everything. So managerial efficiency. The third is velocity. I'm obsessed with velocity. If you tell me that something takes you a month, I will ask you to break it down in 30 pieces. Okay, what can you do tomorrow? Yeah. Um, the last one is obsession for talent. Uh, we really believe in the quality of talent, finding the talent and developing them. And the last one is bad razor, which is this concept of growth. What are you doing today you were not doing last quarter? Why? How can you give me data points, measurable data points, that you are better at something? And if you're an executive, I want to see the same in your team. Mm. So who is doing something they were not doing before? How did you grow them? Love it. Um, what are some things that you guys have learned over time as you evolved as leaders and as executives? I'm asking very selfishly because now I'm managing yeah. team 13 people and I'm always just like, shit, I feel like I'm bad at this. Yeah, um, for me, yeah. it was really a journey because I mean, when we started the company, I was relatively pretty young and I had never really managed people. So Mateo is a testament to, is a, is a, a witness to my process there. It's a very, I would say, emotional journey. And if you don't learn to sort of understand the emotions that drive you in the decisions, in your analysis of your team, in the day-to-day, -day, what motivates you, what gives you energy, what doesn't, and to tame and manage your emotions, um, you can't really grow as a leader. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was something, you know, Mateo is the CEO of the company, so he has my manager, I report to him, and we've worked a lot on together. Um, and so it really is an emotional journey more than you think is just being productive and working and working more. Um, and then the, the second thing that I really learned in that journey is all about the people. When you hire the right people, when you're able to attract the right people to your team, you can make a huge difference as a leader. If you don't have the right people, you can't, you know, the note post as one of our investors says, uh, the team you build is the company you build at the end of the day. So that is really key. But then in my case, and I think for anyone listening who is maybe not experienced in what they're about to set themselves to do or very young, you can also, and you have to complement yourself with people that maybe don't even work for you, but they're like advisors or mentors outside. And that's been really valuable for me. Learn from other people who have done what you're looking to do. And you have to learn really fast and you need to be able to go to, into those conversations very humbly and ask a lot of questions and then bring that knowledge back into your own practice as a leader. There is an emotional trick that is really at the end of the day to in era where I was struggling at the beginning is you you always second guess yourself sometimes in okay how you approach this and what is our culture and then goes back to what I was saying earlier you need to know who you are and you need to build the company around that because again it's like friendship you, 
You cannot be friend with someone who doesn't share your own value. You can force yourself, but it's not going to last. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, you need to understand, okay, what really matters for me? It goes back to this concept of, you know, a culture of being demanding and supportive. We think like a sports team. We're not a family. Sometimes in the early days, we'll say, oh, we're a family. We're not. Right? There is a bench here. Yeah. And top performance needs to be rewarded more than anyone else. Yeah. We are in the playoffs, and we want to win the title, the championship. And so that is the intensity that is required. We work hard, extremely hard. We value velocity. And this is how you will always know what, what you should expect, which doesn't mean is universally good. Just be aware before you join us, because then if there is not a match, you will not be happy. Yeah. And we're not going to compromise on some of the things, right? So probably this word compromise, that before, oh, maybe I should compromise here. Maybe, no, I shouldn't push for that. Yeah. Instead, no, velocity is key for us. I will always push you to get things done in half the time. Yeah. How, how do you balance the striving for to achieve the big goal and the big mission and the metrics and stuff versus enjoying the present moment and enjoying the ride as you're, as you're going through? So that is not my strength. <laughs> <laughs> so they, 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 they coach me and they give me advice. Um, I think everyone is different, right? And it's also based on you know, your age, the, the state of your career, what you're doing. But at the end of the day, the, the key thing is to working on a project that you believe matters. And so there is always this distinction sometimes in the start of the world between uh, uh, missionaries and mercenaries. And definitely if you talk to our people, they are missionaries, right? We have a vision. We want to get to potentially detect cancer. We want to save lives. We want to help people live a longer and healthier life. Yeah. And so that is very, from a motivational standpoint, is, is massive for yeah. a lot of people compared to going to a company where you sell ads and you just monetize, right? You know, uh, selling cook ads uh, on, yeah. on, on the digital platform. Here you're really helping millions of people uh, to live a better life or save them. And so that's what I think is the number one driver. And also the reason why a lot of people at our company, they have been with us for so long, even if it's uh, such an intense place, mm. right? Because it becomes hard to find another company where you as an engineer and a male engineer, you're, you're saving lives. Right? There are a lot of ML jobs, but if you're working on the cart uh, for an e-commerce startup just to convert uh, more purchases, it's not the equivalent to saving a life. Yeah. Yeah. I think on the enjoyment and, and daily, um, yeah, it's, it's something that I think the way we compensate that is that we are different as founders. And I think that's why also a lot of people say, well, it's great when you have a partner in business because you try to seek like that complimentary conversations, right? Where how do you remind each other of sort of the journey you've been through and like what you still have to achieve. And there's a balance. Like Mateo's definitely is a CEO and the vision setting person in the company, the one that's always pushing us forward, and, like pushing people to achieve more. And then maybe I play a role of like, Hey, look at, look at this and like, look at what we've done. But for eight sleep, I think for companies that are really selling amazing products to consumers, the best way to remind yourself of the journey is every day when you wake up and you see, in our case, we see a lot of this on Twitter, people talking about how much they love the product. Because, you know, maybe last day you had like a terrible day or, you know, you lost a candidate you wanted to hire or today you're about to have like a really complicated day. But when you wake up and you see that, that reminds you of why you're about to go through that day. Amazing. Um, Final thing I wanted to ask is that um, what's the, 
what's the dynamic between you guys? You're married, you're running a company. A lot of people say that you shouldn't go into business with your spouse, but you guys have been doing this for eight years. Like, what are the what are the secrets? What have you learned? Yeah, a couple of tricks, uh, and it was uh, mainly because uh, of uh, of Alex uh, that she has uh, set some boundaries. Because otherwise, in my case, I could just keep talking about work yeah. forever. Because I'm passionate about that. But um, so first, we use uh, WhatsApp for personal staff, and we use Slack for business, right? And so sometimes I might be on Slack asking for something to be done faster and or to raise the bar. And in the meanwhile, I'm WhatsApping her saying, oh, what do we have for dinner tonight? Yeah. <laughs> but then the other rule she has said is that after a certain time, like call it 9.30 p.m., I cannot talk about work because her point is you need to treat me like you would treat any other colleague. And it's not that you call them at 10 p.m. unless it's really, really urgent. And I say, fine, but I can still slack at the other colleagues at 10 p.m. if I have an idea. <laughs> and so sometimes we are on the couch watching TV and I start slacking her and there is her phone vibrating <laughs> and I know it's me, but I cannot talk about the topic. <laughs> or um, uh, sometimes we are in Zoom calls and we are just in a room next to each other, but we are both on Zoom. For example, she reports to me and we do a one-on-one at least once a week, sometimes also on Saturday. But my chief of staff joins the one-on-one, and the chief of staff is in New York, we are in Miami, and so we do her one-on-one remotely, even if she's, like, in the other room. Um, So I think you need to professionalize the working relationship. You can't treat each other as, oh, um, you know, we're just family. And and most importantly for us, because this is not a family business. You know, we've been together for longer than we've done the company, but this is not a family business. We have business partners. We have investors. I'm an executive in the company. He's an executive in the company. We can be fired from our jobs. We can be replaced, right? And we need to earn our spot, even though we're founders. You need to earn your spot. You need to grow. You need to be able to manage. And so I think professionalizing is like step number one. And that has made things easier. And so what that means also is that if you have a discussion in a professional setting, you can't bring it to personal and vice versa. Um, and the other big thing that we have learned, I think this applies to any working relationship, regardless of whether you're related or married or not, is that you need to understand how you are different in the approach that you have to very key things. And one of them for us is how do we solve problems or gain clarity? Mateo and I are very different in that sense. And so he has, I think, probably part of your uh, lawyer trained brain, like he has this amazing capacity to focus and he can really focus on one specific thing and subject for a very long time and keep for hours thinking about it, thinking about it until he finds the solution. And his brain performs really well at that level. For me, it's very different. My brain sort of like has the more like maybe creative side. And so I get my best ideas when I'm not purposefully trying to solve that problem. Yeah. I sort of go outside of that world and then suddenly things just click. Yeah. I'm a big dreamer, for example, so connecting to sleep. I dream every night and my brain is sort of putting together all of these things during my sleep. And then sometimes I wake up and I'm like, okay, now I feel clarity. And so finding these things over the years have helped us because then I, when I tell him, Hey, I cannot talk about work anymore today. It's Saturday. Give me my day. He understands that as long as I'm being lazy, right? As a founder, you're always on, but my brain needs it. And then maybe I come back to you later and suddenly I have a solution for what we're talking about. Brilliant. Um, final thing I wanted to ask is uh, any books that you guys would recommend that have changed um, your thinking or impacted your life or business in, in any way? There's two and actually I gifted them to everyone in my team um, that I, I 
always kind of go back to one is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And, you know, my team takes care of all marketing and, and brand and building Eight Sleep as that iconic company is a really important part of what we do day in, day out. And I think Nike is a, a great example of a company that has done that. And the other one is the score takes care of itself. We focus on the fundamentals and like the most basic inputs of how you're structuring your business and how every single person in your team is doing their job. Yeah. You should be able to win the championship. That uh, book is uh, from all of the the frameworks built by Bill Walsh. Um, and this, he was this incredible coach of the 49ers that was able to take a team that was like struggling into winning multiple championships. There is a high output management, uh, which is highly recommended for any manager. He was the former CEO of Intel. It's really like the Bible yeah. for, for management. Uh, there is, if you're in order build from the former CEO of Nest, uh, there is the Almanac of Navarra Vicant, who is also one of our investors in awesome. the uh, And if you are, yeah, a bit more philosophical, there is meditations from Marcus Aurelius, which is really cool to see how people were thinking 2000 years ago. And those, that thinking still applies to us today. Amazing. Guys, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. Um, so great having you here. Thank you for all of the insights on all of the optimizing sleep, diet, nutrition, exercise, all of those things. Definitely, I'm going to take away the 6 p.m. social event thing because there's just no reason not to. Uh, trying, trying to do some interval training as well. And yeah, I've got, I've got my king size eight sleep in a box at home and I will install it in my new place like next week. So I'll report back and let you know how it goes. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks so much for coming on. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.